Petersfield's Shine Radio. Shine Radio's Growing Together with Claire Venice and Steve Amos is sponsored by DeMello and Company. Financial advice for you, your family and your future. Hello and thanks for joining us in Growing Together, the gardening podcast from Petersfield's Shine Radio. I'm Claire Venice and I'm joined by Steve Amos. Good morning. Good morning. It's a proper autumnal morning this morning, isn't it? It's getting serious now, isn't it's it? It's lovely. I love this time of year. It's a bit misty, really heavy dew on the ground, it's a little bit chilly. The sun's trying to poke through the fog. It's great, isn't it? It's been a long time coming actually, hasn't it? The leaves are finally starting to turn, they're yep. a bit later than normal. So when the light catches them, it's magic. It's beautiful, isn't it? It really is. I took a picture yesterday morning. I was up here early. There's not a soul up here. And I took a picture looking down over the plots, like through greenhouses with the mist and the sun right in front of me. It's a lovely picture, actually. Well, talking of bright and early, we are down here at your plot, bright and early. We are. And we have a guest. <laughs> we do. We have Luna with us. So any jingling in the background, that's her, her collar. Apologies for that. She's enjoying herself. Yeah. She's had a play in the mud. <laughs> exactly. She's a little she, bit damp. She's happy. Well, it is beautiful down here. We are the only ones here, I think, at the moment, Steve. Well, it is Monday morning. But like you said, oh, this time of year, it's autumn. Things are starting to close down a little bit, aren't they, down here at the allotment? Started the proper clear-up. So we've had a slight touch of frost. The, the zinnias had had it and the, the rebeccias had all gone over. So I just went through three or four wheelbarrow loads of stuff onto the compost heap. Yeah, it started to look a bit bare, actually. I think that frost in mid-October kind of took a lot of us by surprise. Didn't it? Well, joining us in this episode, I'm delighted to say we have Laura Bauer from the People's Trust for Endangered Species. She's the conservation officer there. And Molly McMillan, who is an expert basket maker and willow weaver. Sounds good. Talented lady. Steve, we have a new sponsor to welcome to Growing Together. Many thanks to Alitex for sponsoring us for the last six months over the summer. And welcome to DeMello & Co, who give financial advice for you, your family and your future. They offer a range of services whether you're looking to build, grow, protect or preserve your wealth, just like we do with plants, Steve. Excellent. Well, I saw as I was coming into the allotment, there's a poster for the Tree Festival. Yeah, it's coming up. 25th of November, it's a Saturday here at the Community Garden. Yeah, it's sort of growing momentum, which is great. I think Pecan's plan is for everybody to have a tree in their garden, which I think is a great idea. Are you thinking about it? I actually got a couple of apple trees earlier in the year from Southern Fruit Trees, potted ones. So I've got some nice big pots now. But I think it's a good idea. You've got to have a bit of space, though. When trees obviously start out quite small, don't they? And here, people have started taking some trees out, thinning stuff out, and you need to. You've got to manage the space and think about where you're going to plant the tree because it's going to be there for a long time. And actually, you're right, southern fruit trees are just up the road in Blackmore. Great experts on all different types of fruit trees and bushes. And they also specialise in the espaliers, the the, fans. Yeah, that's their speciality is the espaliers and the fans. And I have a few of them actually from there that I bought a number of years ago now. They're very, very healthy trees and they're a great way to get fruit trees in your garden without taking up That's right, isn't it? Because they can go against a wall, go against Mm -hmm. a fence or any structure. And as you say, they don't take any space up at all, really. And I've got a half-standard crabapple tree as well. A half-standard? that's a slightly smaller tree. Okay. Tree shaped tree. A tree shaped tree. <laughs> 
but not quite as big as a big tree. Exactly. How many times can we say tree? <laughs> quite a few this time of year, I think. Well, I'm really looking forward to the tree festival. We will be recording Growing Together there, speaking to various different people. There's going to be all different sorts of workshops taking place there, learning about how to take care of your tree, planting, pruning, grafting, advice. So it'll be good. So that's Saturday, November the 25th from 10 until 3.30. There we go. Let's hope it doesn't rain. Oh, now you've said it. I know. Another great thing that's happening around here actually to let you know about, the young farmers are taking part in a 4x4 tractor run on November the 19th. It's a charity tractor run in support of children in need. A gentleman called Henry Bridger, it's his second year in organising this. If you want to get involved, you can find them online. They'll have a fundraising page. The tractors are going to be travelling through Petersfield, Lys, Milland, various local villages. It'll be good though, it'll be good fun. I think it will be. There's a Christmas tractor run that takes place later on as well. They do all the light, put lights on the tractors, don't they? That it looks cool. really cool. So um, lots of fun there. So Steve, I know that Phil Paolo, who we've spoken about before as your environmental officer down here, takes care of a lot of the wildlife around the allotment, mm -hmm. looking after the trees and the hedges. Is there anything that he does this time of year that you know to, to help support the wildlife around this area? It's constant management. We've got a lot of hedgerow around here, a lot of trees. Phil was down here yesterday. Always maintaining the area for the animals, for the insects. We've got a healthy population of dormice here as well. So it's just about constant maintenance. One of the things that Laura Bower from the People's Trust for Endangered Species was talking about was to keep an area of your garden or your allotment over the winter time for wildlife. Mm. So not to clear it up completely so to leave a log pile to leave some leaves have an area where they can hibernate yeah. and they can go to to feel safe so let's hear more from laura now as she gives us tips for how to help our wildlife in our gardens over the colder months as well as tips for how to help them now for spring oh there you go I've come to London to Battersea Park to meet with Laura Bauer from the People's Trust for Endangered Species. Hello, Laura. Hi. This is an amazing park. How lucky to have this on your doorstep. Yes, we are. We come and walk most days. It is very much a British autumnal day. The leaves are falling from the trees. It's a little bit windy. We're hoping to avoid the rain, sheltering under a tree. But I've come to talk to you about the People's Trust for Endangered Species and what the charity does. And this time of year, it's important because a lot of animals are going into hibernation. So yeah. can you tell me first a bit more about the charity, please? So we're a grant-giving charity, but also we do a lot of our own projects now, especially focused on UK mammals, so things like dormice and red squirrels and hedgehogs. Hedgehogs is a massive project, and we have a nice project called Hedgehog Street where we ask people to link up their gardens with other people's gardens. And so I think probably hedgehogs is our main focus at this time of year. It used to be, I remember when I was little, that you would see hedgehogs in the garden. I remember watching hedgehogs playing in my sand pit and wow. just marvelling, I know, marvelling at how sweet and lovely they were. And you almost see them on a daily basis. Nowadays, you don't so much. Why is that? They have undergone a decline and we are looking into the reasons for that decline and it's quite complicated. There are differences between where they live in the countryside and where they live in urban areas. And we think they're actually doing a little bit better in urban areas, probably because our gardens are nice and we provide food and shelter for them there we could do lots to improve it though which is good news 
So things that we talk about are immediate things, like you can put out water for the hedgehogs. And also that helps birds and other things as well, providing water. You can put out hedgehog food. There's a special dry food that you can give them, or you can actually use meaty dog food for them. But basically they are going to go into hibernation. So what they really need is areas to hibernate. So leaf piles and log piles, sheltered corners that you don't disturb over winter. And even compost heaps can be a good place. Um, and they do tend to move around. You know, people are worried when, when they see hedgehogs in the winter, but they do move nests and they do occasionally wake up for food. So that's why we need to provide the food and the water over winter and safe nesting sites for them. So if you have got leaves and things in your garden and you're tidying up and you put them into a corner, into a pile, that's brilliant. But also don't forget, don't disturb it or move it over the winter. Leave it there if you can until spring. And things like compost heaps, log piles will also be a home for invertebrates. So the things that hedgehogs are going to eat, the things that birds will eat. So they're actually great for lots of different things. It's good advice because this time of year it's easy to want to clear up your garden, tidy it up, pack it away nicely. Yeah. So it's all ready to start again in the spring. But as you mentioned, important to leave little areas. Yeah, so just if you are tidying up, you could just put it into a corner instead of throwing it away in the compost or instead of throwing it away in your rubbish bin. So yeah, pile up some nice leaves, sticks, all those kind of things. Have a compost heap. If you're thinking about invertebrates, if you're in a stag beetle area, it'd be great to bury some logs if you can because stag beetles need deadwood that rots underground. So they're pretty reliant on that for part of their life cycle and they live for many years. So we really need that value dead wood don't chop down trees and get rid of them or burn them you know use them in your garden if you can and you can actually make features of log piles by growing nice things up them if there's a stump or a log grow a climber up it to make it a feature if you like but yeah there's so many things you can do you could plan for next year right now you can plant bulbs which will provide nectarine for insects in in the winter and early spring and there's so many things yeah that you can do you can put stuff out now as i say providing water and food or planning for next year, planning where your pond's going to be maybe if you want to provide a pond for amphibians. Loads of things you can do right now. That's good to hear. What animals do we need to care about and look after most? We focus on hedgehogs, as I said, so everyone look out for hedgehogs, um, do your best for hedgehogs. Lots of our invertebrates are, are in decline, particularly butterflies. So providing food plants for butterflies is really important as well. Things like if bramble grows in your garden, try and leave leave some of it because the flowers are great for invertebrates and the fruit as well. Ivy, although it goes mad and lots of people like to just get rid of it, it's actually a really great larval food plant for some butterflies and moths, so keep ivy. And it's a good nesting habitat as well. There's lots of things you could do for these invertebrates, whether they be pollinators or not. But I think we're all really aware of the decline in, in bees and butterflies. But also other things that aren't so glamorous, beetles, deadwood beetles particularly, because we don't like deadwood, we think it's bad, and we get rid of it and clear it up. But if you can, leave stumps, even if you had to tr chop a tree down, let's say, for safety, keep a good section of stump, and it will provide habitat for lesser stag beetles above the ground, stag beetles below the ground. And then there's lots of other things that you probably can't even see, like different flies, tiny beetles, crane flies, all sorts of things, and that would be perfect. This year there's been an awful lot of berries in the hedgerows and uh, on the trees. It's been a good year for berries. But when those wane, obviously we need to look out for our flying friends as well. 
So as well as putting out water, which will help birds, you can also feed them, putting out peanuts, seeds, and sometimes other scraps from your kitchen. And that would help them because they need this high energy, high fat food throughout the winter when there aren't as many insects and invertebrates around. So throughout the winter, we need to keep our birds going if we can, and that'll be a great help. And you mentioned dormice. Do you work actively to try and increase the dormouse population in this country? Yeah, so we do reintroductions. So um, my colleague Ian, he's our dormouse officer and he works solely on dormice, lucky him. And he finds new sites each year to try and expand the range of dormice. But we also do a lot of other things to do with dormice as well. We fund research into why they're declining. And we have a nature reserve on the Isle of Wight where dormice and red squirrels live together which is very unusual because they're both quite rare. So to have both of those is really rare. And yeah, we're promoting things like woodland management and coppicing and all those kind of traditional ways of managing that are really beneficial to dormice. Oh, how lovely. There's something quite special about a dormouse, I think. So the trust itself, how long has it been running for? It's been running for about 45 years now. And we started quite small with just a handful of people giving out grants to projects on conservation across the world. And now we're a staff of over 20 and we do lots of projects in the UK as well, like Hedgehog Street and the stag beetle work that I work on, dormice, lots of other things as well. And I manage um, our two nature reserves. So one I've spoken about, Briddlesford on the Isle of Wight, where we have the dormice and red squirrels. And then we've also got an orchard in Worcestershire as well. So that requires a different sort of management. But reminds me that maybe people could plant fruit trees in their garden. That would also be great for wildlife. Having trees in your garden is brilliant, but also the fruit can feed animals as well. When the fruit falls, you get birds on them, insects, butterflies all sorts of things so yeah fruit tree is a really nice thing to have in your garden that's interesting to have a reserve at an orchard what do you have in the orchard that's interesting it's a species rich grassland so it's got lots of interesting flowers and things orchids and solitary bees and things like that but we're also trying to save the old trees it's about 100 years old and the trees are really in decline now and we've lost many of them but we're trying to keep as many as we can standing and we've been planting new trees to become the new fruit trees of the future and we've also diversified from apples into plums as well because they're a smaller tree they age quicker which means that they have more deadwood in them and so we're really managing for the deadwood insects and there's some really special beetles and other things that just rely solely on deadwood within living trees so you know they're really niche but they're the kind of things that we're caring about there What top tips would you give for providing areas for animals this autumn, winter? So I suppose just think about your garden and what you've got already. We need to provide food for animals and shelter and places to nest. So think of it in those kind of terms. Planting things that's going to feed animals next year is a great thing to plan. But things you can do right now are putting out water, putting out food for birds and hedgehogs and creating those wood piles and leaf piles that will shelter anything from mammals to amphibians to invertebrates and think about the animals that are hibernating. And is this a busy time of year for the People's Trust for Endangered Species? Yeah, particularly for me because I'm going through all my 12,000 stag beetle records that we received this year and trying to verify those and make sure they're all correct. And I'm also planning winter work such as coppicing, 
planting new trees and all the things that go with it at my reserve in the woodland in Isle of Wight. What a lovely job you have, Laura. Thank you very much for telling us more. How can people find out more about the Trust if they'd like to? So you can visit our website. We've got loads of information on there. It's pties.org. And there's also a special website for Hedgehog Street, which is hedgehogstreet.org. You can record your hedgehogs there or you can learn a lot more about all the things we do. Thank you very much for meeting me today in Battersea Park. It was lovely to find out more about the People's Trust for Endangered Species. Steve, we might have to pop over to the Isle of Wight to go and look at the reserve over there. You said you had a busy weekend down here at the allotment. I imagine you weren't the only one down here. I was up here first thing in the morning, just starting to, to tidy stuff up. We had the pumpkin weigh-in competition for our allotment association, which is good fun. We had about 10 people come over the course of the morning to get their pumpkins weighed. So not so big. And one that we had to go to it rather than it come to us. Ooh. It was so big. But to put it into perspective, I was in second place with a pumpkin just over 26 kilos. The winner, nearly double that. It was 47 kilos. Wow. It was a monster. What did he do to grow it that big? And neglected it. By his own admission, he neglected it. The chap that won, a chap called David, has not been very well. And so it's put a lot of squashes and pumpkins and stuff like that on his plot, just for ground cover, really. And thought he'd plant a couple of big ones, chances luck in the competition. And sure enough, it was a whopper. But it was good. And some kids turned up with, with their pumpkins. Really nice sort of community feel about it. So I know you don't do an awful lot this time of year leading into the winter to grow. No. But are you doing garlic this year? I am, yes. Oh, you're going to ask me what variety I've ordered, aren't you? Solent White, I think it is. But it's full of flavour, nice and strong, great on garlic bread, super in cooking, and it keeps as well. So it's from the Isle of Wight. I think the garlic farm on the Isle of Wight is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, but it needs to come in pretty soon. Yeah, because you can plant garlic in the autumn. There are some varieties you can plant in the autumn and there are yes. some varieties you can plant in the spring. Yeah. But if you're doing the autumn ones, it's a good time to, to get it Now is the there. time, definitely. One of the other things I did this weekend, I cleared out the greenhouse, got rid of all the dead and dying tomato and cucumber plants and all the chilies that have gone over and had a good clean out and then planted shallots. Okay, so you put yours into trays, don't you? Pots. Each shallot goes into just a four to six inch pot and just plonk the shallot in the middle. Don't bury it, just on the top, moist compost, and away you go. And you leave them there over the winter? Yeah, stay in the greenhouse over the winter. Just make sure that the compost stays nice and moist, not wet, because they will rot. And then early March time, plant them out. Now, if you didn't do that, could you put them into the ground in your plot over winter? You can, yeah. And I've seen people that do that, and it's a bit like planting onion sets. Just make sure the birds don't pull them out. I'd put a fleece over them just to keep them a bit protected, which is essentially what I've got in the greenhouse. You know, the doors open throughout the winter. It's a cold greenhouse, but it's just a little bit of shelter for them. How many have you planted? About 30. Okay. Not too many. Not too many. <laughs> Are you planning to show these for next year then? Well, I've renewed my stock and uh, one of the many groups that I'm a member of on an exhibition showing, a few people are offering some shallot sets for sale. So I've, uh, I've treated myself. Sounds like a treat. You should see his face. His <laughs> eyes lit up. Oh, and do you do the same with the garlic then? Do you plant the garlic into pots? No, I plant that in the ground. Yeah, so separate the bulb up into the cloves and then plant them sort of six to eight inches apart. And I, I go probably four inches down. So quite deep. Make sure it's really free draining soil though. If they're sat in clay, they'll just rot. So nice free draining soil and they'd really like a cold snap. Vernalisation, I think it's called. So they'll, they'll start shooting because the soil's nice and warm still. 
but don't worry if we get a heavy frost or snow they're tough old things well i've ordered some as well actually what have you ordered i have ordered a selection an autumn planting selection from the isle of Wight, and within that is some elephant garlic as well oh is there yeah <laughs> have you grown elephant garlic before i think i have but i don't think i was very successful it's a lot milder than your regular garlic. I mean, one clove is like the size of a bulb of regular garlic. Yeah. Absolutely monstrous things. I love the idea yeah, yeah. of it. Bit of fun, try something new. Exactly, why not? So they're on their way, hopefully, and I'll pop those in soon. And now, because it's November and it's getting colder, it's also mm. time to plant your tulip bulbs. I tend to put mine in pots. So I've got a few in a bed in the back garden, mm -hmm. but I love loads of tulips in pots. And they all come up, and I like the long-stemmed ones as yeah. well. So you've got this beautiful array of stunning colour come the spring. And it's important to remember, isn't it, the guidelines on the back of the tulip pack will say space them, this, that and the other. But if you're putting them in pots, absolutely jam them in. And a great way of doing it, you could put tulips on the bottom, then a layer of soil, then some daffodils, then a layer of soil, and then maybe some crocus or something like that on the top. So then you've got your February colour with the crocus, your March colour with the daffodils, and then your April, May colour with the tulips. So in one pot, you've got four or five months worth of colour. It's nice to know it's there as well, isn't it? You can sit back happily knowing that you've created created this beautiful spring garden you don't have to do anything about once you've potted it. Well, exactly. Out. Well, it's getting a little chilly. It's that time of year. I don't know about you, Steve, but starting to think about December and Christmas. Oh, you went there. It's not far away. <laughs> I know it's not, I know. I love looking at trying to bring in some of the outside inside so that you have these lovely autumnal winter displays in the house this time of year. Whether it's seed heads or some beautiful coloured dogwood, that kind of thing. It can look beautiful. And the person who knows so much more about plant fibres and willow is a local lady called Molly McMillan, who is an expert bar maker and willow weaver and I went to her workshop to talk to Molly in more detail about her fantastic craft. I'm with Molly McMillan who is an expert basket maker and willow weaver and I'm here in her workshop in East Hampshire. Hello Molly. Hi Claire, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. Well thank you very much for inviting me here. It smells amazing in your <laughs> workshop. It does doesn't it? It's always got an interesting aroma in here. <laughs> and we're surrounded by huge amounts of willow, all sorts of materials that you use which we're going to find out more about. So you have been a basket maker <clears throat> and working with willow for a number of years how did you get started in the world of basket making? It all stems back to my original training, which was I spent a year in the woods training to be a bushcraft instructor. And actually, that's where I met my husband as well. But as part of that course, we had to learn how to use tree bark. And that was kind of like the light bulb moment. I was like, oh, this is good, isn't it? I'll spend the rest of my life in the woods making things out of tree bark. We'll be fine, thank you. <laughs> so, as I said, me and Nick, my husband, met there. And then we sort of just taught ourselves everything we could about tree barks because there's very little information about it in this country particularly. And we didn't know anybody at the time who did much teaching about it apart from John Ryder, who we originally learnt from. And then at some point, I thought, oh, I better learn how to make willow baskets. And I had made one willow basket on a course with an archaeology group in Sussex years ago, but it hadn't clicked. And I also have a good friend, Louise Arthur, who has a basketry business in Lys, and she taught me a lot. Yeah, it just kind of went from there. 
it just kind of takes you over. <laughs> you can't leave them alone. You can't leave the sticks alone once you know you can do stuff with them because they're just like magic sticks. Well, it's a real craft. And looking around your workshop here, you have some items that you've crafted hanging up all over the place, actually. It's absolutely beautiful. Where do you source your materials from? So with the willow, I use two different companies down in Somerset, which is where all the big family growers, they have like miles and miles of it because I need so much. I couldn't grow it all at the moment. I haven't got a handy field to grow the willow. So I buy in a lot, but I also do harvest a fair amount of stuff locally. So wherever I go, I tend to shove willow in the ground and it obviously grows. So I kind of build up this map of places in people's gardens. If I see willow growing out of someone's hedge, I'll go knock on the door and ask them if I can harvest it. So I go round in the winter and harvest all that willow. And then all the tree bark, which I tend to harvest with my husband, which is all behind me, all in big rolls on shelves behind me. That's mainly red cedar and sweet chestnut bark, which we harvest ourselves from local woodlands in the spring. And then looking up above us, I've got all my plant fibres hanging down above our heads. And they're all either from my garden or for hedgerows or ponds. So I just harvest those, usually throughout the summer. I had this image of you wandering around with a pair of secateurs in your back pocket. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And a load of string hanging out the other pocket. How long does it take for the bark and the plant fibres to dry out then? Well, it depends on the material. The bark takes a little bit longer because it's obviously quite thick. But on a sunny, warm day, it can take maybe a week for it to dry out. And then as long as it stays dry and out of damp, you can keep it forever it's a lovely material to use because you have to soak it and soften it again to work with but then you can let it dry out and you can keep soaking it really multiple times which you can't do with willow willow is much more high maintenance <laughs> there's a lot involved with willow in terms of the soaking and preparation and storing that's a bit more complex the bark looks incredible it actually looks like leather mm. rolled up there on the shelves so you have just launched a new website yes and it's full of beautiful pictures information about what you do and you've got some workshops coming up too do you do workshops throughout the year yeah absolutely i mean obviously we're coming up to christmas at the moment so the ones that are very busy filling up are the christmas workshops so i do wreath making where you actually make your wreath from the willow and then you decorate that with greenery but all throughout the year i run courses so i run willow basketry courses i run my focus on fibers course which is very much about the experimental plant fibery stuff and then my husband nick who's busy picture framing behind us he runs a three-day cedar bark course as well so we go into the woods and harvest the materials with the people who come on that course and then make baskets for two days and that's pretty magic in the woods yeah you mentioned nick he is working hard behind us now you're both getting ready for an exhibition that's taking place at the beginning of november at the physic garden and it's called lights among the trees oh it's always fun trying to come up with a name for an exhibition nick's artwork he draws beautifully detailed charcoal drawings of botanical objects, lots of trees. He went through a period of drawing lots of lichen, but at the moment he's got some absolutely beautiful drawings of trees, which he's about to start framing soon. So we were very much there with the tree thing. But there's also a giant drawing of an allium, which hasn't been seen by anyone yet. So there's 
three new drawings, aren't there, that nobody's seen in public, which is quite exciting because they're huge as well. They're all quite big drawings, so they'll have an amazing impact. And then in amongst his drawings, the venue, the Physic Garden, is a lovely little venue and it's got great potential for hanging things. So we were like, right, okay, we'll put lots of lampshades in there as well. So I weave lampshades from the willow, but there'll be a whole load of other baskets. And hopefully if I get myself together, some Christmassy goods as well. So we wanted to just put that theme of light and trees together. Perfect time of year. This time of year, there is absolutely beautiful light, isn't there, outside, if if you're lucky to catch a sunny day. And the exhibition will take place on November the 3rd to the 4th from 10 till 4pm. You also were involved in the Chelsea Flower Show this year with your basket weaving. How did that come about? That was so random. It wasn't planned, put it that way. (laughs) It was one of those nights I was going to bed and I just looked at my phone before I turned it off and a friend tagged me in somebody's post and the post was from a garden designer called Pollyanna Wilkinson and Polly had a bit of a problem and she'd been let down by a basket maker who she normally works with so she was very keen to find some replacements so me and Nick went okay we'll see what we can do panicked quite a lot but they were amazing to work with it was a mind-boggling experience and then we got making and we had to make an awful lot of panels in a very short space of time and basically what they were they were the exterior that would go round and hide the metal containers to put the soil and then the plants in for this beautiful garden that Polly designed so it was an RHS garden it wasn't one of the competition gardens it was a commissioned garden that was all to do with celebrating women in horticulture which was really lovely So, yeah, that was our first experience of Chelsea, which was total crackers. (laughs) They looked amazing because I did go to see Pollyanna's garden and I saw your beautiful woven basketry. There was a lot. How long did it take you to make all of those? I don't even know anymore. I think I blocked it out. Weeks. So much fun, though. There was so much stuff going on around us. Polly and her team were awesome. Do you think you'll do it again? Well, since then, we have started working with a chap called Alex Hoyle, who is a plantsman. So we've been doing various garden installations in London. That whole element of exterior design and projects with a garden, that's now a real established part of the business. That sounds great, though, how naturally that came about. This is obviously a very traditional way of working with material from the land. Are you finding there's more interest in basket weaving and people wanting to find out more about it, get involved with it? Oh, absolutely. And it grows every year, actually, I think. This country has got an amazing wealth of basket makers. There are a lot of us. And also a really lovely variety of basket makers. So there's lots of people who specialise in rush baskets. There's the plant fibre ones, which is becoming more and more popular. And actually lockdown kicked that off because lots of people used Instagram in lockdown to show what they were making in their gardens and because you couldn't get out necessarily and buy all your willow or whatever there was a boom of plant fibre ones so that's quite interesting but people just love making and I think courses just are a joy to teach because people like you said earlier when you came in here and the smell that's like the first sensory hook when someone comes in they're like that smells nice (laughs) and from there then you learn about the materials oh it's just joyful just putting them together so as soon as somebody's had like half an hour of sitting there with some sticks <laughs> they're usually sold and it's obviously really sustainable like everything we do is a sustainable practice 
So nothing we harvest is diminishing any natural resource. And it's beautiful. You end up with a very beautiful, very grounded relationship with the earth and with plants. You can't avoid it. It draws you in. That's what I love about it. Well, amongst all the beautiful basket weaving, you also make a rather unusual item. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I make willow coffins, which is actually becoming less unusual. There's, there's two or three, or maybe more than that, but very specialised willow coffin makers in the country now. Predominantly, that's all they make. I don't make them all the time. It's usually individuals who come to me and ask me to make them. So I don't work at the moment. I don't work with any funeral directors. But it's just a beautiful, privileged thing to be able to do. They're gorgeous vessels anyway. They look lovely. I, yeah, I just find it such a, a lovely process to be able to do that for somebody. And recently I've had an, a lovely situation where an old chap who is not dead asked me to make his coffin because he was getting organised. So that was really lovely because obviously I knew him and he was alive and kicking and we had various conversations and he came to pick it up. And then people can come be part of the process as well. So you can come and take part in the weaving if you want to do that as part of being part of that whole process. And sometimes people will also come and make their own and be very organised. Goodness, that's quite an emotional journey to go on then with them. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a lovely one that doesn't necessarily mean you have to talk about anything to do with the grief or whatever's going on. You can just get lost in making or it just gives that really nice space for people to talk if they want to. But you're creating something beautiful from the earth that then is a lovely resting place. Oh, that's quite special. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoy it. Now, you have a relationship with the Adhurst Estate Allotments, which is where we record Growing Together, in that you've worked on a willow structure for a a children's play area. How did you get involved with that? Well, there's two nurseries, and they got this massive willow dome at the allotment. This dome was desperately trying to return into being a whole bunch of trees, basically. The first year I went to cut it, I was cutting branches that were sort of thicker than my arm. And now what I do every year, I go back and I manage that and I cut off about a third of the material and then weave back in two thirds. So, And if you do that every year, then you kind of keep a grip on it and you can maintain a shape and some control over it. Otherwise, it literally does just turn back into trees. Yeah, It's quite a lovely structure. I walk past it it? every time I go to Steve's plots. I I love being able to do that. You kind of get a funny relationship with these structures yeah obviously the children use it I also leave them all the willow which is lovely because it means the children are using it playing with it and making things out of it so that's really nice potential basket weavers of the future (laughs) the age of three (laughs) yeah (laughs) Molly thank you very much for telling me more about what you do how can people find out more about you oh well have a look at my rather lovely new website which is www.mollymcmillan.co.uk it's been quite a special morning coming here and meeting you and Nick working away in the background best of luck with the exhibition both of you luring people in for a cup of tea come and have a chat people are very welcome well thanks so much Molly lovely to meet you and Nick and looking forward to taking part in a wreath making workshop that Molly's putting on as well see you're far more artistic than me Claire 
I, I did buy, you know, the artificial wreaths and then you add your own stuff into it. It was quite effective last year, actually. Maybe you could weave into it some garlic and some onions that you still have drying. You could make Imagine a vegetable the, one. <laughs> a two kilo onion weaved in there like a big old bell or something. <laughs> that I would love to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, watch this space. Steve Amos's special Christmas wreaths. <laughs> yeah, quite unique. Well, I don't know about you, Steve. Toes are getting a little bit chilly as we're sat here. You've got your wellies I've on. I've got my wellies on. It's that wet up here. As it's getting colder, it's important to look after your tender plants, plants outside that you need to protect and you haven't done so already. Pop some fleece around it. Yeah, get, get some fleece. It's readily available. I bought a load a while ago at a garden centre I went to by the metre and that's a, a really cost-effective way of buying it, actually. Can you get different thicknesses? Yeah, the stuff I've got is quite thin, but it's only to protect generally in the early spring after I put potatoes in and stuff like that but you can almost get a two or three mil thick fleece. Wrap things up tightly don't let that cold get into them. Now is a good time also to think about maybe adding another water butt to your garden ways to collect water. I know here Steve you have quite a few. A little wry smile came on my face when you said about water butts because literally from here I can count 15 water butts all series linked together. Not that we're obsessed with collecting water. We are sat right by them as well. It's like water butt city. It is isn't it? Do you use them all? Absolutely. And rainwater's better actually. Well it is to be fair we're off grid so we're actually taking it from a natural source anyway. We've got grand pounds afoot to double the size of our water capacity for the system that we've got here to supply tenants. Another 10,000 litre tank. We, we had a bit of a struggle earlier in the year when we had that really hot spell. So we just want to make sure that we've got the capacity. But it's just about managing your watering regime. Having a load of water butts enables you to water more freely than relying on the mains. Worth thinking about it. If you have a drain pipe that doesn't have a water butt at the bottom of it, consider getting one. Oh, definitely. Well, Steve, thank you very much for meeting me down here. No, absolute pleasure. Nice way to start the week. It's actually a really lovely thing to do. The sun is almost poking its little face out, isn't it? But wrap up warm if you are going out to your allotment or into the garden. Find some warm socks and some good jumpers. Good advice, Claire, yeah. definitely. <laughs> thank you very much for joining us. And also to our guests, Laura Bauer and to Molly McMillan. As always, we would love to hear from you. So do send any questions or just say hello to us at join us and grow at gmail.com and say hello and follow us on instagram growing together underscore podcast we'll be back in mid-november until then happy gardening growing together is new twice a month and supported by demello and company financial advice for you your family and your future get the latest editions of growing together at any time at shineradio.uk Get ready for the big Christmas switch on with Shine Radio. It's Joff and Claire, live in the square as the lights go on across the town. And it's all happening on Friday the 24th of November. Illuminating Claire. Joff Lacey and Claire Venice host the light switch on live in the square. We'll have live music, loads of fun. And the countdown to the moment the mayor throws the switch to light up Petersfield. Join Joff and Claire live in the square. See you on Friday the 24th of November. Petersfield's Shine Radio. Shine.